All right, good evening. Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We will read from verses 1 through 11. And before we read, let's pray together. Father, we long to behold more and more of this salvation that you've given to us. And your law is our delight. So we ask that you would hear our cry, that you would hear our plea, and so you would give us understanding according to your word, that your hand would be ready to help us because we have come here to to seek you through your word. So grant us the grace we need. Teach us your statutes, Father, so that our lips would praise you. We know that your rules are right, and so we continually sing of them. So we look to you. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So tonight, our focus will be on verses 1 through 4. We read through verse 11 because this section is so closely connected and Verses 5 through 11, in which he's describing what Christ has done, is really the perfect example of what we're going to see tonight. But we'll just, we'll just get to verse 4. So our study of these verses will be using this, this heading, these two headings. So we'll see gospel benefits and gospel community. We really could add the third, which would be the gospel example of what Christ has done. But we'll just look at these first two, gospel benefits, gospel community. Gospel benefits, we see in verse 1, where Paul is describing the benefits that God has given to us through the gospel in his Son. And then gospel community is how we'll summarize 2 through 4, where Paul is saying, in light of the gospel, in light of these benefits that we've received, this is the type of life we're to be living. This is the type of community we're to be as God's people. So it's these benefits leading and resulting in this community. First are these benefits. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. The verse begins in the ESV with the word so. If you have the New American Standard, it's therefore. And if you have the NIV, it actually puts it later on in the verse. But what what that's showing is that this first verse is really the foundation of everything Paul is going to say in the next three verses. So verse 1 is the foundation of verses 2 through 4. And why it's important to see this is because it it would be easy for us to take verses 2 through 4 out of context and really make the point of this passage just some moralistic exhortations. In other words, we could take these verses 2 through 4 and come away thinking that what Paul is trying to tell us is just be a nice person, do a little better, be kind to others, don't think about yourself. But when we see how verse 1 connects to these other verses, we see that it's much more than that. That he's not merely telling us to do a little better, but instead he's reminding us of all that God has done for us in Christ. And he's saying, in light of that, in light of what God has done, this is now how we're to live. Another way to see that is how 1 through 4 are really an elaboration of what we saw last month when we looked at 27 to 30 of chapter 1. If you look at 127, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what we saw when we looked at that is to live a life worthy of the gospel does not mean that we earn the gospel by our life because the gospel is something that God freely gives to us. It also does not mean that we actually live the gospel, because the gospel is a description of what Christ has done for us. But instead, to live worthy of the gospel means we live in response to what God has done for us, as well in accordance with it, in reflection of what Christ has done. And that seems really what Paul now is doing in chapter 2, is he is elaborating on what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the way we could see that is verse 1 is, again, a description of what God has given to us in the gospel. And then 2 through 4 is what it looks like to live worthy of that. So when Paul says, so, a way we could paraphrase 1 through 4 is him, by saying, is him saying, so, if you have believed in the gospel and so received these benefits of it, now live in a way worthy of it. Live in a way worthy of it by living in this humility and this unity. So both of those things are just meant to make clear in our minds that these commands that Paul is giving here are not just uh, moralistic commands, but they are things that are flowing out of the gospel, flowing out of what God has done for us in Christ. And here we see just one example of how Christ is superior to the philosophies of this world. Because here we find an answer to the question both of the how and the why we should live in this way. In the world, there's a, at least in some some sections, a great plea for everyone to live in unity, for everyone to live with this kindness. You go to a junior high, at least the junior high I went, went to, and what is it? It's kindness is cool. And even at the bank, at Wells Fargo, I saw a big thing that said unity. And what was unity? It was that today is 
um, Islander, Asian Islander, um, I don't know what it is, but Heritage Month. So about emphasizing the different ethnicities and appreciating them. And what was the plea to have unity? So here we see the world wanting us to live in unity, wanting us to live in kindness. But if we were to ask the questions, why and how, the world couldn't give an answer. If, according to what some people believe, evolution is true, why and how should we live in this way? If evolution is what is real, why should we live in unity? Why should we be kind? And how can we do it? Because what would evolution say? What would be the law of the land? It's survival of the fittest. And if that is the case, why should I not oppress someone if I can? Why should I not take advantage of a, who could be seen as a weaker group, if I'm not able to? Because isn't that exactly what evolution says should go on? And how can we do it? If we're just animals, if we just respond to what's going on in our bodies, how can we actually live in a different way? By contrast, if there is encouragement in Christ, if we have comfort from love, if we have this participation in the Spirit, if there is affection and sympathy, then we see both how and why we should live in this way. We should see, we see why we should do this, the reason why we should live in this way, as well as the strength that we need to be able to do it. And that's what Paul describes with these gospel benefits, is telling us how we should do this, how we can do this, and why we should do this. So let's look at each of these. We'll just we'll briefly look at what each of these are, and then we'll think about how these things connect with what Paul's going to command us to do. So he lists either four benefits or five benefits, depending on if you group the last two together. But the first you can see there in verse 1 is encouragement in Christ. So this encouragement is taking place in Christ. Because of our relationship with Jesus, because of our union with Him, we are both exhorted to live like Christ, and we are strengthened to do that. We are encouraged in the sense of being exhorted, and we are encouraged in the sense of being strengthened. Second thing is there is comfort from love, and it seems best to understand this is God's love for us. So there is comfort from God's love for us. Not just in the general sense of the fact that because God loves us, we have comfort, but also in the sense that because God loves us, He comforts us, He consoles us. That is the cry in Isaiah in the second part of this book where there's this transition from the first part, then this historical middle, and then this, the last part of the book. In Isaiah 40, it begins by saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So there is this, this cry to comfort. God's saying, comfort my people. And how, is they, how are they to be comforted? By being spoken to tenderly. That's reminded me of what we saw last week from Psalm 35. If you remember when Pastor Rob took us through that, in, in Psalm 35, 1 through 3, David writes, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. 
Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. What is David saying? He's saying, Lord, speak directly to my soul this truth. I am your salvation. That's the comfort we have because of God's great love for us. He doesn't just do that with everyone. He does that with his children, with his people, that he speaks to us personally. He speaks to us on an individual basis in this way of this intimately, tenderly saying to us, I am your salvation. How does he do that, though? He does it by his spirit, through his word, with the help of his people. It's that as we're meditating on Scripture, the Spirit brings some verse to mind or someone shares a verse to us that our soul is comforted in times of trial. That is a repeated emphasis in Psalm 119 where the author, we don't know who it was, but they were going through afflictions. And so a theme throughout this psalm is the afflictions they were going through and yet the comfort that God gave him through his word. Just an example is Psalm 119, 49 to 52. says, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. So he says, in my affliction, this is my comfort, that your promise gives me life. So he's reflecting on God's promise. And then in 52, how he thought of God's rule, he thought on God's law. And so as a result, what did he do? He took comfort. So it's through the scriptures, by the Spirit, with the help of God's people, that we receive this comfort from God, that he takes the truth of his word and he speaks to us tenderly in that way. So the benefits of the gospel, that we have this encouragement in Christ, we have comfort from love. Third, going back to Philippians chapter 2, we see that we have this participation in the Spirit. Participation in the ESV, other ones say fellowship. It's the fact that we have a relationship, we have fellowship with the Spirit, and because we have that fellowship with the Spirit, we have this relationship and fellowship with one another. And then last is affection and sympathy. Sometimes these are translated together and speak of God's deep compassion, his compassionate um, heart towards us. And we saw the affection of Christ back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says that he yearned for the Philippians with the affection of Christ Jesus this deep emotion that Christ had, this compassion that he had on those who were suffering, that God, despite our rebellion, despite our hostility towards us, he had a deep compassion for us in our suffering. And he was moved by that mercy, by that pity, to then give his son to redeem us. It's just what we're saying about how deep the Father's love for us, that we in our sin were not forsaken by him because he had this affection and this sympathy for us. So those are each of the benefits. Now, 
how do all those things connect to what Paul is going to command us to do? So these are not cert- certainly not all of the benefits that we have in Christ. So why did Paul choose to put these five here just before he's going to command us to be of the same mind, to live a life of humility? What's, why are those, why did he choose these? And it, it's at least one reason we don't know because Paul's not here and he didn't tell us, but what we do see is that with each of these things, they drive us away from self and to seek to help other people. So they take the focus off of self to put it on others, which is exactly what humility is. Humility is not a focus on self, but it's to have this servant, selfless attitude in which we're focusing on other people. So with encouragement, we're encouraged to live like Christ. We're strengthened to do that. And what did he do? He did not live to please himself. That's exactly what we see in the rest of rest of what we read in Philippians, but it's also the point that Paul makes in Romans 15, where there's very similar wording and similar themes to what we're seeing here in Philippians. So Romans 15, 1 through 7, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you can see there Paul Paul giving the same type of theme of not living to please ourselves, not living to focus on ourselves. Why? Because this is exactly what Christ did. Christ did not live to please himself, but instead he bore our reproaches. He took our our shame and our sin in our place that he suffered so that we might live. As well as we can see there this encouragement that God gives to us through the scriptures. So the encouragement that we have in Christ drives us to live not to please ourselves, but to live for the benefit of others. How about comfort? How does comfort drive us away from self to others? And that is because as God comforts us, he in fact does that so that we would go and comfort others. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, why? So that we can just be comforted, so that we can be happy, wealthy, and prosperous? No. Who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God's plan is that as we go through trials, He would comfort us, 
for the purpose of having been comforted, we would then go and be able to comfort others. Not that it would just be comfort for comfort's sake, but so that he, he would comfort us so that we could go and do the same for others. How does participation connect? It's the fact that because we are united together in Christ, by the Spirit we are united together with one another, we then are to live in unity. We are to live as people who are one because, in fact, in Christ we are one. Ephesians 4.3, Paul says that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this unity is not something we create, it's something that we are to maintain because the Spirit has created it. And last, with affection and sympathy. We saw this back in chapter 1, but the fact of God's great affection and love for us compels us to do the same for others. Because God showed mercy for us, we are to show that same mercy to other people. When we act in unmerciful ways, when we act in unloving ways, when we act in selfish ambition and conceit, it's showing that we have forgotten the mercy that God has shown to us. We had looked before at Matthew 18, where Paul describes this parable, not Paul, Jesus describes this parable in which there was a servant who owed a debt he could never repay. The master forgave him, and then what did he go and do? He went to this servant who owed him a debt that was significant, but far, far less, but he refused to forgive him of it. And Jesus' point is that's exactly what we do. When we, for, when we fail to forgive others as God has forgiven us, then we are losing sight of the fact of what God has done for us. So this affection and sympathy is to drive us to show that same affection and sympathy to others. So that's the gospel benefits. Now, what is the type of life that is to result from these things? So given that we have this encouragement, we have this comfort, we have this this fellowship and affection and sympathy, how is our life to be different? And Paul says it's to be different because we're to live a life of unity and we're to live a life of humility. So first, in verse 2, it's a life of unity. Verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's exhorting them. He says, Complete my joy. He's encouraging them to, to make him happy. How? By living according to God's word. And specifically, by being of the same mind. They're to have this same way of thinking. And it's not just, though, a a way of thinking. It's, It's, as he describes, he goes on to expand that by saying, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So there is to be a unity that takes place That's not just of our thinking, but of our whole outlook on life. It's to include our values, the things we love, the things we're pursuing. In all of these things, we're to be united. And as we already said, this is something that we, in fact, already have in Christ. In Christ, we are united. The Spirit has united us together as God's people. So 
Whether we are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, in Christ we are one. In Christ we have been united. But at the same time that we possess it, as we said, it's something also after which we're to seek. We're to be pursuing to have this same mind, to have this same way of thinking. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, it's clear it involves what? It involves our thinking. That is, Christians, we are to be a thinking people. There is this stereotype that to be a Christian is to be someone that doesn't think, but in fact, to be a Christian is to be someone who has this thinking that is according to God's word, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is what Paul describes over in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 24, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness." So he says at the beginning, this is, this is how the Gentiles live. And by implication, this is how we once lived. Our minds were futile, we were darkened, we were ignorant, and we were hard. But then what happened? By God's grace, we learned Christ. We came to understand who he was. And what did we learn in him? We learned that we were to put off our old self. The spirit of our minds were to be renewed and we were to put on the new self. So to become a Christian is in fact to learn Christ. It's a, it's a function of our thinking that we're understanding something to be true about him. And then how do we progress in this Christian life? By our mind continually being renewed. Our mind continually being transformed. And so when Paul says over here, in Philippians, that we're to be of the same mind. He said, we're to have this same way of thinking. We're to have our minds constantly renewed by God's word. Over in chapter 4, he's going to say again, you're to be thinking. You're to think. When you come to church, when you read your Bible, when you go throughout your days, what are you to be doing? We're to be thinking. And here he says what we're to be thinking about. 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, dwell on these things. These are the things that are consuming our minds. This is how we come to be of the same mind, as our minds are continually dwelling upon the truth of God's word. What do these things show? It shows that just positive thinking is not enough because of what we were, because we were, our, our minds were futile. We needed this deep transformation to take place. And it also shows that the Christian life is not something that's passive, but we're to be active in. 
We're to be actively thinking in this way. And again, that is what then he'll say in in Philippians 2, verse 5, how we're to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that we are to come to have the very mind of Christ as our mind is more and more renewed by God's word. So first then, these gospel benefits are to result in us living a life of unity. Second now is there to result in us living a life of humility. And we see that in verses 3 and 4, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And here with these verses, we have something that applies to every single area of our life. Because it calls us to examine not just what we do, but why we do it. And then it commands us to do all that we do in humility. And I just, I just kept thinking about these verses and thinking how all-pervasive these verses are. Because every single thing we do, what does Paul says? say, None of those things should be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, every single one of those things are to be done in humility as we count others more significant than ourselves. We're never to do anything merely looking out for our own interests, but instead we're always to consider the interests of others. So if we, just some questions to kind of get us thinking in this is, is what do we do when we hear of a need? Do we immediately draw back because we're afraid of what this might take from us? Or what do we do when someone asks or demands something of us? What do we do when someone speaks to us in a cutting fashion? Do we immediately seek to defend ourselves? And what do we do when we do not get our way? What do we do when we have this perfect plan of what's going to happen and then something completely destroys it? How do we respond in those ways? And these are just a few questions that help us to see the many ways in which we seek to satisfy self and defend self and promote self. But Paul says what? In nothing are we to act out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in everything we're to do so in humility. So if we are convicted by that, how do we go about seeking to change? How do we go about seeking to live this life of humility, putting to death this selfish ambition? The first thing is just what we have already seen, that it begins by a renewal of our mind. It begins by changing the way we're thinking about situations. You can see that in verse 3. As Paul says what? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, consider, think about others as more significant than yourselves. So as we go about our days and we're faced with some decision or we're faced with some circumstances, what are we thinking about in that instance? Are we thinking about my time, my money, my needs, my whatever, my comfort, my sleep? Or are we thinking about others? By nature, where do we go? Always self. 
It is only by God's grace, it's only by His transforming power that we come to, come to begin to think about others, come to think about they're more significant than me. Helping someone during the night when they need to be changed is more significant than my sleep. And we can take that and apply it in every single area. Giving someone money is more significant than this latest thing I wanted to buy. Helping someone is more important than me getting to watch whatever game I wanted to watch. So it begins by us considering, counting them more significant than ourselves. Also then in verse 4, what does he say? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So again, it's something we're to be... We're to look at, we're to think about this, we're to be thinking about the interest of others, not merely our own interest. We're to begin to consider what might this other person be needing. And I mean, a great connection is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So thinking about, okay, it's not just about me, but if I was to want this, what would I want someone to do to me? Begin to consider their interest above our own. So to put off selfish ambition, to put on humility, is, is, begins by this renewing of our mind. But also, we need to see that selfish ambition shows that there's a, a greater problem than just our thinking. That is, we do not just have sinful thinking, but we actually have sinful, idolatrous desires. That when we act in selfish ambition, when we... Do not consider others above our own. It's showing that we are desiring something. We are worshiping something. We're treasuring something. And so we're going to seek that in, even at the expense of others. And that's what James describes for us in James chapter 4. In chapter 2, he, he talks about this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition And then he continues in chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read um, through verse 5. James 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? So what does he say? What causes quarrels? What causes fights? Why do we fight? Why do we have this selfish ambition or strife? Why, as Paul is seeking, one of the things he's seeking to address in Philippians are these two women, Iodia, Iodia, and Syntyche, and they were not agreeing. What was their problem? It was a problem of their thinking. It was also, as we see here, a problem of their desiring. Why do we quarrel? Why do we fight? Because we want something. And we don't just want it, we in fact worship it. To the point of us being called adulterous, an adulterous people, James says. 
that just like in the Old Testament, when Israel would worship idols, they were called adulterers because they were, in fact, forsaking the Lord as their great love and were turning to something else. So here, when we worship something, when we desire something above the Lord, we are acting in spiritual adultery, and that is what is causing these quarrels and fights. That we are worshiping something so much, we are willing to sin in order to get it. And so if we are going to come to do, as Paul says, to live in humility, no longer to live in this selfish ambition, what will it take? Not only our thinking being renewed, but us humbling ourselves before the Lord. And that's what then James goes on to say. James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So as we are convicted of the ways in which we're living in this selfish ambition, what do we do? By God's grace, we should reflect upon, okay, how am I thinking about these these situations? Am I considering others more significant than me? Am I merely focusing on my own interests? And then also looking at what am I desiring? What is so important to me? Ultimately, it's a focus on self. It's a worship of self over the worship of God. And as the Lord convicts us of that, what does then James call us to do? Is to humble ourselves before the Lord. See, what a, what a precious truth, verse 6 is, that God gives more grace that in our sin, in our rebellion, God will give grace to us as we turn to him, as we humble ourselves before him. So just close by us as we think about these things, and because these verses have so many applications, is just exhorting um, you, exhorting each one of us to, to reflect upon these verses as we pray Psalm 139, the end of it, where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That we would take these verses and we would pray for the Lord to search us, to search, Lord, how am I acting in this way? How am I acting in selfish ambition? How am I seeking to to satisfy self and defend self and promote self? And then, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way of Christ. And again, remember that God gives us more grace and that we are pursuing this not on our own strength and not in and of itself, but we are pursuing it in response to what God has done for us. That God has given us the benefits of the gospel. And so as a result, this is how now we're to be seeking to live. This is how we're to live in light of what God has done for us. So because of the benefits of the gospel, this is the life we're to live, a life of unity and a life of humility. And by God's grace, more and more we are able to do that.
because he is faithful to finish his work in us. So the benefits of the gospel, encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy, and then this gospel community of unity and humility. Let's pray together.